If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 10 is where we will be this morning, Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible and a seat back somewhere near you, you'll find a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one right out with you when you go. Today, we are looking at one of Jesus' most famous parables. Uh, even if you didn't grow up in the church or you don't have an extensive knowledge of the Bible, you have no doubt heard of the Good Samaritan or you've heard of references of the Good Samaritan. This is what a story that Jesus told that we are looking at today. Now, sometimes, especially when you come to a parable like this one, um, it, 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 kind of the takeaway can sometimes be overly uh, watered down into some sort of like moral do-goodism. And, and, and yet uh, today, as we look at this story, yes, there's going to be application. Jesus is going to call something from our lives today in us studying this. But, but there's something deeper here than just a, a be a good person who helps people. And in order to get at kind of the, the, the deeper understanding of the call that this parable lays before us, we got to see the context in which this, this parable is told in. And so if you look in your Bible, in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25, we kind of get the scene set for us of what led to Jesus telling the story. Luke 10, 25 begins like this. It says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, put Jesus to the what? Now, as we, you know, as we study the Gospels, like putting Jesus to a test, is that a good plan or a bad plan? Is that usually something people logically win or not, right? But you have a lawyer here, a scribe. It was the business of the scribes to study the Jewish law, to help transcribe the Hebrew scriptures, and to help interpret the Jewish law. These were experts in the law. And so if you had a question around how something was to be interpreted or how the Jewish law was to play out in your life, it was the scribes and the lawyers, the scribes, the lawyers, who could help you understand that. But now we need to know something. The scribes were usually masters of the letter of the law and missing the heart of the law completely. And so you see the motive of this scribe and that he is seeking to put Jesus to the test. And he's going to put Jesus to the test with a question. We find that question in verse 25. Behold, the lawyer stood up to him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the heart of this question is, can Jesus answer the most fundamental question of how one comes into a right relationship with the living God? How one experiences, has eternal life with God forever? Can Jesus answer this? And really in the heart of this lawyer is, can Jesus answer it in a way that is satisfactory to him, the expert? But now Jesus does something with this question that is like iconic Jesus. Look at how he answers him here first, verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus responds to this lawyer's question with a, with a question. Jesus is the master of this of taking a question from someone whose heart is to trap him or test him 
and turning a question back on them. And now hear this, Jesus' heart in this is not ultimately to win an argument, it's ultimately to win his heart. When Jesus leads with questions, what he's doing is he's drawing out the hearts of the people he interacts with. Hear this from the get-go. Jesus is not interested in winning an argument here. He's interested in winning a heart. And how, like how I need to remember that at times. The guy who was willing to fight someone in college over witnessing to him about Jesus. It's not ultimately about winning arguments. It's ultimately about winning hearts to Christ. And so he responds with a question here, and in verse 27, the scribe or the lawyer is going to give an answer, and it's a faithful answer. It's a good answer. He sa- and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your, what's it say, and your neighbor as yourself. The scribe crushes the answer in many ways. The scribe gives a faithful answer in many ways. Jesus is going to say, yes, this is a good answer. And yet, um, what we have here is, again, someone who is missing the heart behind it all. The answer he gives is uh, often called the great Shema, this this Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Hear, O Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Leviticus 19 says, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is something that would have been repeated by a man like this at least twice a day. He knew the answer of what ultimately brings God glory and what ultimately is the heart of one who has been redeemed by God. And yet, he's missing the heart behind it all. But Jesus hears his answer and in verse 28 he says to him, and he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, do you think the lawyer who's come with a heart to test Jesus, do you think he's satisfied at this point? Do you think he has satisfactorily in his mind tested Jesus and won? And so he's not done here. He has, a, he has a question that he's confident is going to stump Jesus. I don't know how this played out, but I, I imagine if there were his friends there with him, he, he elbowed them and said, now watch this. You ready for this? But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Hear the heart of his question. Who do I have to love? Who, do, who does God spell out for me that is deserving of this kind of love? What is the minimum love requirement that one has to live out here in order to appease God? And Jesus hears this question now, and he has an answer for him. But the answer he gives is not probably the way we would answer Jesus doesn't immediately answer with kind of a a three-point principle-based response here. He doesn't summarize it into one principle-based statement. Instead, Jesus answers this question, and who is my neighbor, with a story, with a parable. And it's this parable that we often refer to as the parable of the good Samaritan. See, this story is going to get at, for this scribe here and for us, how we love, how we neighbor, And who we love, who we are to neighbor. 
And I confess to you, as I began my study of this this week, um, I, I, I began the study with a bit of a heart in the same place as the, as the scribe, as the lawyer. I thought, I know this story. I know the principles of it. I'm very familiar with it. I'm going to study it. I'm going to break it down, and I'm going to stand up on Sunday, and I'll teach it. But by Wednesday and by Thursday, the Lord had brought my heart to a place where, I said, where he said, yes, you might know the details of the story, but I need this story just as much, if not more, as this lawyer needed this story, and here's why. I, too, find it easy to think about loving people and neighboring in this minimum love requirement kind of way. And I, too, often will serve just enough to appease my conscience that I've done some good things, but often not enough where it takes great sacrifice of love for other people. And I, too, uh, love those I like. And I find it very hard to love those I don't like. I know we're all Christians, and we, we like everyone, right? And I often find that my love is people are hurting and need help. I often feel bad for people. I really do. And it moves me. There's feelings of compassion inside of me. But I find in my own life that often those feelings of compassion sometimes don't over, overflow into action of compassion to actually serve. Y'all, I need this story just as much as this lawyer does here. And so today, I want to walk us through this parable. I want to summarize this parable with this line right here, and then I want to break this line down for us. But this line, it says, loving our neighbor means compassionately serving anyone, anywhere, anytime. Loving our neighbor means compassionately serving anyone, anywhere, anytime. So let's get into this parable here. Let's see this and then let's break this down together. But first, let me pray. Father, help us. Uh, Lord, we are people who we, we can't love in a way that glorifies you in our own strength. Jesus, we need you. We need to, to, to draw deeply from the compassionate love you have poured out on us and let that overflow out into our love for others, Lord. Teach us how to neighbor today. Teach us what pleases you in neighboring. Teach us what glorifies you in neighboring. God, we pray, we ask for your help. And I pray all this now in Jesus' name, amen. So remember the question, and who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replies. Jesus replied, <clears throat> a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, I, I want to stop there because I want us to understand that uh, in this parabolic story Jesus is telling, he's given it a very real and concrete setting. The first century hearers, and this, this scribe in particular, when Jesus talks about the road going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, when we were in Israel in 2014, we went on that road, the, the, the first century scribe would have known exactly this road that Jesus is talking about. 
and, and this road would, um, it's often called the descent or the ascent of Adumim, or the way of Adumim. And, and that word Adumim is, is a play on the Hebrew word for blood. It's often called the red way or the blood way. And the reason for that is because of the reddish hues in the rocks. It's an extremely rocky uh, road. And there's this reddish hue, but it also had this name, the way of Adumim, because it was so dangerous, because people were likely to be bloodied. All the caves and all the cutouts were prime places for bands of robbers to hide. And as people made their way down this road to jump them, then to do exactly what happens here in this parable. It's like if you were walking in a dangerous part of a city and you came across a road that said blood road, you're probably not walking down that road. And so it, it wasn't shocking, it wasn't entirely shocking for this scribe to hear that a man was traveling by himself from Jerusalem to Jericho and a band of robbers strip him, beat him, and leave him for dead. But what was shocking is what comes next. Verse 31. Now by chance, now by chance, who's coming down? A priest. Now by chance, a priest was coming, was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, let me just remind us, what is the question that the lawyer asked that sparked this parable from Jesus? What was the question? Who is my? If anyone knows what neighboring to the glory of God should look like, it should be a, the servant of God, the servant in God's temple, the one who would have known the great Shema, the one who would have known and recited again and again Leviticus chapter 19 of what love for neighbor looks like, the one who would have taught other people what it looked like. If anyone was to know what neighboring in that moment looked like, it should have been a priest. And yet the priest walks down the road. He sees in this story, he sees the man stripped, beaten, and left for dead. And he, and he passes by on the other side. But hope is not lost. Another person is walking down the road and another religious leader, verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And so a priest has come and has seen the man and has passed by. Now a Levite, uh, think of a kind of a simplified way, a priest's assistant, one who descends from uh, the line of the tribe of Levi that you would read about in the Old Testament, the one who had responsibilities of serving with the utensils and other things in the temple, the one who would have known the great Shema, the one who would have known what neighboring was to look like to the glory of God, the one who would have recited it, and he too sees this man stripped, beaten, and left for dead, and he too passes by on the other side. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible and if you know the story, you know what's coming next. Let me remind us that the lawyer didn't. And most likely in this first century Jewish lawyer's mind, what he probably thinks is coming, okay, a priest didn't stop and help, Levi didn't stop and help, okay, this is going to be a parable about just a good, faithful, regular, everyday Jewish man or Jewish woman who's going to stop and help, and, and Jesus is going to make some point there. So we can't even fully understand the surprise in this lawyer's mind when he hears these words. But a, but a Samaritan... 
And y'all, I'm telling you, yeah, I just yelled y'all, okay? Y'all, I'm telling you, at the word Samaritan, this lawyer would have scoffed, he would have rolled his eyes, he would have thought some derogatory thing in his mind or muttered it under his breath. Jews hated Samaritans. They were a lesser class, they were a lesser people. To eat with a Samaritan was to eat unclean. There was a deep divide of enmity here. When you think about a story with an unlikely hero, the good Samaritan is at the top of the list. But when a Samaritan, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. The man stripped, beaten, and lying on their own. He came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had, don't miss it, he had compassion. But now I want us to see some things of how that compassion got played out. He had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and, put, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now Jesus has a question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The scribe answers, verse 37. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and what? You go and do likewise. Loving our neighbor means compassionately serving anyone, anywhere, anytime. Now, I want us to take this parable. I want us to see what I'm laying before us as the meaning of this parable. I want us to break this into its parts. And in breaking it into its parts, I am going to call us to action today. But I hope in breaking it into its parts and calling us to action today, I hope I'm driving us deeper in the truths of the gospel of the compassion Jesus has poured out on us for us to even have any power to live this out. Because if all we do is see the story of the Good Samaritan as moral do-goodism, we will have the power to go be really loving people till noon tomorrow. So how do we take this go and do likewise and out of an overflow of gospel reality in a heart of a people who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, live this out? Let me start with the first part of this. Loving our neighbor means compassionately serving. When the, when the priest saw the man lying on the road, what did he do? He passed by. To simplify it, he did nothing. When the Levite saw the man lying on the road, he passed by. He did nothing. But when you look, and this is such a powerful point in the story, when you look at verse 33, and the Samaritan comes onto the scene, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had, and there's a really important word here, he had, he had compassion. 
He had compassion. But I want us to see something about his compassion. This wasn't just a hand on the heart, a shaking of the head. Uh, uh, Thoughts and prayers. His compassion overflowed to action. His compassion overflowed to genuine sacrificial serving of the one who is helpless on the road. Let me point out some of these actions. He cleaned and bound the wounds. He set this man on his own animal. He put him in an inn, and then in the story, he stayed the night with this stranger caring for him. He provided two days' wages to the innkeeper to keep him there while he recovered. And then at the end, he vowed something. He said he would be, he'd be back. This was compassion that overflowed into action. Loving our neighbor is more than just thoughts and prayers. Loving our neighbor is more than just the sending of the prayer emoji. I'm not anti-prayer emoji, okay? Let's just follow it up. Just follow it up. True Christ-like compassion overflows into action. How do we know this? Because we have a God who in seeing our plight our lying on the dusty road left for dead plight did not look down from heaven and just say thoughts and prayers. I wish you the best. But in seeing our plight, he came down. For God so loved the world that he, that he gave his only son. Compassion that loves our neighbor overflows into sacrificial action, not ultimately because we just are trying to be good people, but ultimately because we're living in response to a Savior who came down and whose compassion overflowed into saving action for us. So loving our neighbor means compassionately serving. Now, That's helped us get at this, how are we to neighbor? How are we to love? But we're still not to this, who are we to neighbor? What does this parable teach us about that? Loving our neighbor means compassionately serving anyone. Anyone. The fact that Jesus makes the hero of the story a Samaritan encourages encourages us towards something. This sacrificial, compassionate love of neighboring is to pour over out of our life not only on the people we like. Not only on, hold on, don't tell him, but not only on fellow Christians. This kind of love overflows onto our enemies. I know you probably don't have any, but let me say it like this. It overflows onto the people you don't like. When I say that, some of you have specific faces and names in your minds. Others of us have general groups of people that we see in our culture in our minds. But when we talk about compassionate, 
love that overflows from our lives. It overflows even onto our enemies, even those people you find in your flesh very hard to like. Or if I can flip the coin, it overflows onto the people who don't like you. I know, you can't believe it, that there are people actually out there who wouldn't like you. They're crazy, okay? But what does compassionate love look like towards them? This parable encourages us towards a compassionate, sacrificial serving of anyone, yes, even our neighbors. It encourages us towards a sacrificial service of anyone in the form of the helpless. You have in this story, if, if, right? We, we can be so used to this story that it can lose some of the, the, the punch and the power that a man was stripped and beaten and left for dead. That he is naked and beaten up and lying left for dead on a dusty road. He is the epitome of helpless. That the compassionate serving of loving our neighbor, of one who is in Christ, it is a tangible sacrificial love for the helpless. And now I know if you're like me, when we hear things like that, we have this tinge of guilt because helplessness and hurting in our world, it feels overwhelming, does it not? Shrink it down from just the world, just even in our own community, just looking at helpless and hurting, it feels overwhelming. We can feel like there is so much need, where do we even start? And so we typically don't start anywhere at all. Can we just take a step today? Can we just take a step today to moving towards hurting and helplessness? Can we take a step to that prompting and the stirring that you sense God has been working on your heart to, for your family to foster? Can we take a step today for that prompting and that stirring, for, for God prompting in your heart for you to join a care community to help the families in our church that foster? Can we just take a step today? To, to, for us to know that within the proximity of where we live are people that are helpless and hurting. Can we take a step towards their front door today? I, we probably can't solve world hunger by the morning, but we can take a step. And again, the impetus of this is a God who saw us in our helpless state and moved toward us, not away from us. So loving our neighbor means compassionately serving anyone. Loving our neighbor means compassionately serving anyone anywhere. Now, I've read this story many, many times, and one thing that never struck me like it did this week about this story is that I've unpacked for us that this, is, this was a known dangerous route. It was a known dangerous route before Jesus walked on earth, while Jesus walked on earth, and for a number of years even after Jesus walked on the earth. What struck me this week as I was studying this is that what the Samaritan does in seeing the, the man lying on the road there is he gets down, he stops the journey that he is on, and he lingers on a dangerous path to clean the wounds and to bind up the wounds. He himself is willing to stay in dangerous territory longer than I'm sure he wanted to be for the purpose of serving and loving other people. What if neighboring well will take us or keep us 
and uncomfortable, or dare I even say dangerous places. See, here's the thing, right? And just being gently, a gentle critique on kind of the way we often think about following Jesus. Often our American way of following Jesus practically, functionally is Jesus will follow you wherever you go unless it's dangerous. Because Jesus, that would just be unwise. And yet what we have here is a Samaritan willing to linger in dangerous territory for the purpose of loving and serving people. Can I just lay before us that maybe, probably not for all of us, but for some of us in this room, neighboring well, loving others well, may take us into uncomfortable, even dangerous places, or may keep us in uncomfortable or dangerous places. Um, Talking about uncomfortable places i we have we great friends have become some neighbors of ours and uh, i've shared i think from the pulpit before the first time we went to meet them there's a sign on their front door that says we we shoot first and ask questions later and i'm like ha ha okay here we go and uh, just through the, you know, the, the years, we've gotten to know them well. We love them. And um, uh, I was hanging out down at their house with um, um, a couple of the guys there. And uh, the, the guy said, um, man, I'm never out of arm's reach from a gun in this house. And I said, okay, uh, where's the one within reach right now? And he said, right there in the cup holder. And I looked down, sure enough, there it was. And... Uh, that's been an uncomfortable mission field for us. But we're so thankful for the work God is doing in the midst of that. Neighboring and loving well may take us to uncomfortable, even dangerous, or keep us in uncomfortable or even dangerous places. Loving our neighbor means compassionately serving anyone, anywhere. Now here's, here's maybe the hardest one, actually. Anytime. The Samaritan was on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. This this hurting person interrupted his plans. Neighboring well, hear me now, everyone listening? Neighboring well is inconvenient. Neighboring well is inefficient with your time. I create built a friendship with a guy doing great ministry in Indianapolis. A couple years ago, we had lunch and we followed up on that with just some texts. And he said, hey, Brock, how can I pray for you and for Redeemer? And one of the things I sent back is, will you pray that we just continue to be really efficient in disciple making? And he responded with a one line question that I'll never forget. He said, is disciple making efficient? Question mark. Neighboring is inconvenient. Loving people is inconvenient. The thing that strikes me most about this, after all this Samaritan has done, stop, clean the wounds, bound the wounds, put him on his animal, put him up for a night, left two days wages. The thing that strikes me the most is when he says, and I'll be, I'll be back. Christ-like love keeps coming back. Even when you don't feel like going back. Even when you think they don't deserve for you to go back. Even when you think, what is this doing? 
What is this accomplishing? I am so thankful for a savior of mine who keeps coming back to me, who keeps pursuing me. And nothing has taught this more, uh, to, nothing has taught me more to than this than, than parenting. Where I tell my little ones, stop. Why do you keep doing what I ask you not to do again and again and again? And the Spirit of God, just with his gentle whisper, says, and rocks on you. And he pursues again and again and again and again and again. If we are going to be a conduit of the love of Christ, let me warn you, it is so inconvenient. It will feel so inefficient with your time. You will probably have to margin your schedule more in order to neighbor well. And what if God looks down on that and doesn't measure success the way our kingdom does with how efficient we're being with our time? What if he looks down on that? Some of us who are wired a bit more type A. And what if, is, what if as the, the, the God of the universe gazes down and sees us lingering with neighbors, lingering to love people well? What if he looks down on that deeply pleased? Loving our neighbor means compassionately serving. Redeemer, we stand up. I'm going to send us out of here. Now, I want to commission us out of here with the closing line in which we find in this part of Scripture in which Jesus says to the man, you go and do likewise. Who was the neighbor in the story? The one who showed mercy. Now, Redeemer Bible Church, you go and do likewise. And yet, as I send you out of here today, I want to encourage you with what I started with. If our going and doing likewise is only as deep as seeing today as a moral pep talk, we'll never live this out. We don't have the power to love like Christ in our flesh. And so in your going and doing likewise, can I encourage you to something? Today, tomorrow, this evening, will you go linger in the passages of Scripture of how Christ has pursued you? Will you go read the account of the cross? Will you go read the Gospels of how he pursued people in love? Will you linger in it? Will you meditate on it? Will you let it refresh your soul? Because it's only when we go deep in the compassionate love that Christ has poured out to us and we're abiding and resting and remaining in that, that God does a supernatural work of an overflow that pours out on to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Amen? Deep in the Lord, overflowing in love to everyone. Redeemer, you're loved, you're sent. Have a great day.